Yeah, I think a lot about how my assessment layer has to make my students feel safe to do the inquiry, right? If students are worried about that high stakes midterm final exam, pop quiz the next day, you're not going to get anyone but the most ambitious students to do the hard stuff, stuff that they don't think, they, there's no way you could ask this on the quiz, right? Or if you did, it would not be effective anyway. So by giving students this kind of compartmentalizing, this is how your learning is being measured, and this is all just here to either help you be successful when I measure you on these learning, or just for your own education, and you're not going to be worried about that because you have a very clear view on how you're going to be measured. So I'll say explicitly, this is not going to be on this, but I think it's really cool how Google works and how PageRank works, and we're going to talk about this. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning, from traditional grading to met- alternative methods of grading. We'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Sharona Krinsky, one of your co-hosts, and unfortunately, Bosley is not able to be here today, so we're going to soldier on without him, but I know he's with us in spirit. Happy New Year, everyone. This is going to be one of our first new episodes of the new year. I'm very excited to introduce you to two of my favorite people in the alt grading world. Yes, definitely two of my favorites, Dr. Stephen Klontz and Dr. Drew Lewis. (laughs) I have had the amazing opportunity to work with both of you over the last couple of years on a number of projects, and I'm really excited to have you here today. Drew is a mathematician and education researcher with a strong interest in faculty development. He received his PhD in math from Washington University in St. Louis and then went to the University of Alabama, then to the University of South Alabama, and is now located over here on the West Coast with us, which is amazing. And I'm going to let you talk about your origin story, but I'm really excited to have you on. Is there anything else you wanted to add or change uh, about that intro? Did I get anything wrong? No, everything you said was accurate. Awesome. And then we also have your partner in crime, Dr. Stephen Klontz, who is a mathematician, professor, and puzzle designer based out of the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. His puzzles and games have been published in print and featured at such venues as the National Museum of Mathematics and included in the MAP Challenge, do they call that MAP, Uh, events across the country. His research specializes in the intersection of topology and game theory, and his work also contributes to the cyber infrastructure of mathematics research and education. So welcome, Stephen. Thanks. I've got your favorite word in there, Drew, cyber infrastructure. I, no, I'm just looking at that. And I'm thinking I really should update that about page. That, that's a few years old. I'm really doing more of the, the social technical infrastructure bit these days. Um, 
Right. I know you're very involved in a bunch of the open resource, open educational resource community projects. And so hopefully we'll get to talk about that. But so, Drew, I'm going to start with you. Tell us a little bit more about you and particularly about your origin story as it comes to alt grading. Yeah, so I got involved in starting doing this maybe it was 2015 so this was this was back in the dark ages of, of the internet where we didn't have substack newsletters and things people actually wrote blogs um, and so people like uh, Kate Owens and Joshua Bowman were, were blogging about their adventures using standards-based grading in uh, math courses and I, I was reading these blogs and I thought it all sounded pretty great but I was teaching large calculus courses with 80 plus students in them um, and I couldn't quite figure out how I wanted to do it with that many students, but I ended up teaching a, a summer course with a small number of students. And so that's where I decided, okay, I have a few students. Even if I screw this up completely horribly, it's not going to completely blow up my workload with this few students. Um, so I tried it that summer and uh, yeah, made all my, not all my mistakes, but a good chunk of my mistakes with uh, only a few number of students there. And then in the fall, I started doing it with my big 80 seat calculus class and kind of went from there. That's amazing. And Stephen, how about you? What's your origin story with this? Uh, so one of the fun things about being married to an actual teacher as a university faculty member is that I discover things that my wife Jessica has known for years. And so the first time I encountered alternative grading, I spent one year at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She was working in a local elementary school. And I was helping her with some data entry with some exam that she had given and she was coding. I think I was trying to mansplain like, oh, this would be much more efficient if we entered the data this way. She's like, no, no, Steve, we're, we're coding all these questions to the particular learning outcomes and I need that information. And I was like, well, why? I was like, because then I know what my students know, what my students don't know. And I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. They should do this at the college level. And then fortunately, about six months later, I met Drew when we both started at the University of South Alabama in 2016. And I think we were hanging out with Raj. I think we were doing something with the ILC and someone name dropped that you were doing standards-based grading or something. I was like, oh, that's actually, it is a thing. And so I got super excited and I asked you for everything you knew and I I made all my mistakes in the spring of 2017, I suppose. Uh, But I've never looked back. So I think all of this is very interesting because your timing, Drew, is pretty much just before mine. I started probably in 2016 with those same two people, Josh Bowman and Kate Owens, with the standards-based grading. So that's fascinating. Then I know, Drew, you and I met up in person. Was that in Denver or was that the year before? It was in Denver at the Math Fest. Right. So 2019, I think. Right. The MAA Math Fest. And Kate and Robert and I were just, and Dave and I were just starting to talk about this crazy idea of a conference. So that was, uh, that was pretty amazing. I was there too. That was a really fun, uh, that was my first math fest. And it was a great <laughs> math fest to hang out with uh, a bunch of cool folks. How did I not year. remember, were you at that same luncheon? And I'm just uh-huh. completely blanking. Oh, I'm yep. so sorry. First time I met you and met Kate and met all the cool people. <laughs> I showed and up one of are. my... One of my earlier projects, trying to make a grade book for, for alternative grading. And then these days I, I use Canvas because right. you're a great tutorial, I think. <laughs> well, thank you. So I know we're going to talk. I want to have you both on the podcast in your own rights to talk about your individual journeys. But one of the things I wanted to really get you guys on today is to talk to you about the TBIL project, which it, on one hand seems like it's separate from your work with standards-based grading. And yet it's also not. 
So who wants to launch us into TBIL? What is TBIL and why should we be doing it? Drew, How I'll does it you, work? I'll let you take the wheel on this one. <laughs> yeah, so TBIL is uh, team-based inquiry and learning. And I'm trying to remember the exact details, but around the time Stephen and I started at South back in 2016, I think we had both been interested in inquiry-based learning for a while. Stephen, um, I know you had some experience with it in grad school. I'd never taken a course about it, but... Again, people wrote blogs about things back in the day, and I, I read about it, it sounded cool, but I could never figure out how I was gonna do this in all these calculus and linear algebra courses I was teaching. Um, and then uh, at, at South at the time, their quality enhancement program was centered around team-based learning, which I'd never heard of, I didn't know anything about, but I went to a workshop at the Teaching and Learning Center there, learned about it, and I don't know, Stephen, were you in the same yep. workshop I did? Yep. Yeah. And so I think we both had the same light bulb kind of going off as we were sitting in this workshop, like, this is a way that will help us actually do this inquiry-based learning in these calculus, linear algebra, differential equations classes that we teach a whole lot of. Yeah, Drew, I just remember, like, looking over at you, was like, do you think, could we? Is that, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. T-based learning is the chocolate to the peanut butter that is inquiry-based learning, is how I like to think about it. So when you created TBIL, you were already exploring alt grading or were those like parallel? How'd that work? I had been doing it for several years at this point. And I guess we were kind of developing this at the same time that Steven was really getting into standards-based grading. So I, I think did. the first time... Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, well, so I was say, I, I was doing flipped learning my first year at South because of course you should like try a pedagogy you've never tried before the first year you show up uh, at a new institution, but it worked out okay. I mean, it was at least as good as any direct instruction I could have given, and the class was a lot more fun because they were actively doing stuff in class. I did that in fall, but my assessment structure was awful. It was terrible. I had the huge high-stakes midterm and final, and I knew better even at that point, but that was just a mistake. And then the night and day when I implemented standards-based grading, that's the only thing I changed was how I assessed in the spring. Kept all the same flipped videos I had recorded, but now I was doing regular, uh, I forget how I did it, maybe every two weeks. It was it was a calculus four-hour class, so every two weeks on a Friday I had a, a checkpoint quiz or whatever I called it, and it was just so much better. Being able to have students assess what they knew, get feedback, be able to reassess, the only thing is, of course, it was my first semester, so I didn't have any sort of guardrails on having a dozen students out my door for three hours every office hours, uh, the little things you pick up along the way. Um, and it, it kind of turned on some light bulbs for me in terms of how technology could be used to automate some of this process as well. Um, but all that was happening at the same time as Drew and I had gotten this. So I don't think we'd gotten the email from, yeah, we definitely not gotten the email from Raj yet about the, the terrible idea, don't do this. I think that was the next winter. But that first winter after we got trained in TBIL, we got, we started kind of brainstorming like, well, what would this look like if we were to do, I think we, I've, I forget why we centered on linear algebra. Drew, do you have, is it just you were teaching that a lot already or? I think I was teaching it that spring when we were talking about this and I was on the schedule or we got on the schedule to teach it in the fall. Yeah, so I think, yeah, you were teaching in the spring and then I had never taught it and I had honestly not thought a whole lot about because that's just not the flavor of mathematics that I, I was a general topologist, do a bit of game theory, do a bit of set theory, but linear algebra, 
shows up shockingly little in what I do as a researcher. So it was perfect because I got to play test having not thought deeply about how I understood linear algebra or how I would teach linear algebra. I got to play the I, I honestly believe that this is the best way you can come up with new material, really good pedagogical material, is to partner with someone who knows it very well and someone who doesn't spend as much time thinking about it because then you can actually get some good, especially for active learning, especially for inquiry-based stuff, where you really need to put yourself in the shoes of a student who's literally never thought about this before. And I think that partnership is part of why I think it's been successful, if I could pat myself on the back for being successful, I suppose. So, Drew, can you explain a little bit more what is team-based inquiry learning, and did you start right away with it and standards-based grading, or what was the sequencing there? Yeah, so I guess what team-based inquiry learning is, so team-based learning, basically, you get your students in permanent teams, you mix them up by ability levels, and then the inquiry part is that they're working on these rich inquiry tasks during class, and the team-based part just kind of gives it the structure of how this team activities are going to go. From the start, I think as Stephen and I were thinking about this, we were both doing standards-based grading. So we wanted to make sure that whatever we did, it was supporting this. I think at the time, maybe if you disagreed at the time, Stephen, but I viewed the assessment and the pedagogy as separate. So we kind of structured this as this TBIL is all about what are you doing in the classroom with your students to help them learn the material. And then if you want to pick this up, you can assess them however else you want. But at it was very influenced by this standards-based grading philosophy. So as we're developing these materials, we have it split up into modules and each module has these lovely learning outcomes, which are our standards, which an instructor doesn't have to use them, but it's kind of set up to make it very easy for them to align their assessments with these standards and things like that. Um, so it's, re it's really kind of, I mean, I think even our first, well, even our current textbooks, right? The, the sections are aligned to each standard. So there's one section per standards. So it's really kind of, even if you're not doing standards-based grading as you're, as you're doing this pedagogy, it's, it's still kind of there uh, behind the scenes. So like to jump on that, I think that what alternative grading and team-based inquiry learning or team-based learning, which it came from having common is this notion of backwards design, right? If you want to be effective as an instructor, or you want to be effective in assessing, then you need to be thinking carefully about what is it that you're measuring? What are the learning outcomes that you're measuring? And so I think that it's, again, if I could abuse the Reese's metaphor again, I think alternative grading is another way to think about chocolate to go with the peanut butter of team-based inquiry learning. However, explicitly, it's not a requirement for team-based inquiry learning. As Drew said, they work really well together, and we make it very easy for folks that adopt TBIL to also adopt the alternative grading assessments that our project provides for our instructors. But folks are free to assess however they wish or however they have to assess, depending on their institutional requirements. So, Drew, something you said really resonated with me just recently. You said you'd been trying to do the active learning and something like you didn't have some of the success that you were hoping for or thought you were supposed to get. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because that really resonates with me and why I do what I do. Yeah, so I guess with the, I was trying to do active learning in the classroom, but I was struggling to get all of the students actually engaged at any one time. And so I think that's where the team-based structure really comes in by having the students in the teams working on these tasks and really everybody is engaged rather than just having a few of the students in, engage at the time. So for me, I had tried, I mean, my mom was a math educator 
So I was sort of learning at her knee in the 80s about cooperative learning, as it was called back then. And I had been trying in my classrooms for literally decades with very measuring degrees of success. Never that sort of out of the park home run that the best instructors I knew had where their entire classes were engaged and it was so much fun. I was like, wow, I just must really suck at this because I can't make this work. And for me, when I made the grading switch, which was well before I came to your TBIL Institute, I made the grading switch and suddenly my students were pulling active into the classroom because they're like, yeah, 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 I don't want you to go on and lecture and talk about the next thing. I've got a question about this thing that I don't have yet. And so then I took on your linear algebra class mostly because I was handed it to teach and I was where Steven was and maybe worse. I literally had never had an, a, a lower division linear algebra class ever in my entire mathematics career. And my upper division one, because I didn't have the lower division one, had been painfully difficult. So here I'm now supposed to teach essentially content I didn't really know. So I reached out with you with a sort of screaming by text, help, please. And you handed it off to me. And that was before I had gone to your workshop. So you just kind of like, here are the materials. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, but it just worked so well together. Um, so where are you now in your belief about pedagogy versus assessment? Are they separate? Have they blended? What's going on first for Drew and then for Steven? Yeah, the, I mean, these days I, I really have trouble separating them. The way the standards-based grading gets students focused on these standards really, really begs me to structure what I'm doing in the classroom around those particular standards and to make that more more transparent. I guess the, the other thing that I think it really impacts, and maybe Stephen will say more about this because I think I've, I've picked up a lot of this from him, is that we don't necessarily have to assess everything we want our students to do. Um, and so I can think about separating, here are the things I really want to assess my students on, and maybe there's this really rich activity I want them to work on, but it's really ill-formed and it'd be difficult to assess or whatever. Well, I'm going to integrate that into the kind of the classroom side of it and make a really great inquiry activity around that, and then not even worry about trying to assess that kind of thing. Stephen, what about you? Thoughts? I had a really nice experience recently. It was the week before finals or something, and a student came by my office and he just straight up asked me, he was like, why do you, how long have you been grading like this? Like, why do you do this? And I said, well, I'll tell you, because you told me that when you walked into my office 10 minutes ago, because he'd been hanging out for a little while asking questions about content, when you walked into this office 10 minutes ago, you didn't walk in and say, how do I get extra credit or how do I improve my grade? You walked in and told me, hey, I understand this learning outcome. Can I show you? This is literally what came out of his mouth the first time he came into my office this is like the dream, right? This is all we really care about in a certain sense as professors is we want our students to learn and we want our students to want to learn and we want our students to be able to understand what learning is and how to demonstrate that learning to us. And through the scaffolding that my alternative uh, grading scheme had established for at least this student, it brought that home. That's just really gratifying to me that I can have those sorts of conversations in my office and not did I only get 80% in my participation grade today sorts of conversations. What has been the biggest challenge about 
the integration between active learning and standards-based grading? Is there one, or is there a challenge that existed before and doesn't exist maybe because the two work so well together? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I never really thought about it because at the point we started doing this TBIL stuff, I had been doing the standards-based grading for four or five years at that point. So I guess I never really thought of it as a challenge. It was more like, this is how I'm going to assess. Like, it was just kind of a non-negotiable, like, this is the classroom I teach in. This is how I assess. And we're going to think about the, the class activities as they go alongside that. Yeah, I guess what it kind of makes me, Drew kind of alluded to this earlier, is that there is a lot of like higher level Bloom's taxonomy stuff that, that I would try to get in the classroom that I just don't measure through through my alternative grading scheme. And part of what I've done that I, I was really happy with this past fall that I think is going to help me is I started introducing pre presentations and really leading in on the reflection side of it as well. But really with the presentations that really made me excited because I've been a little like... Not, are, are they really caring about this and more advanced stuff or these sorts of things I'm not capturing in my randomized assessments that I give them through Canvas? But then I have them come to my class, in my office and have a conversation, like do a presentation. And they can talk a lot better than they can write, I think, sometimes. And I think that having that, and especially being there to have that live conversation like you would have in real life with someone, if you're talking about a technical topic, where you can talk back and forth and go, well, the student couldn't snap off the definition off the top of their head, but if I asked uh, the, the right question or, or poked at the right part of what they did say, they were like, oh, no, I didn't mean that. I mean, it really meant this and, and, and fix it. And I feel like that's something that they are able to do because they are having these conversations in the classroom with their students and with their peers at these teams. Now, you guys have been running TBIL workshops for faculty for a few years now. To what degree does the assessment piece come up in those? And or have you worked with faculty after the fact who did not adopt the assessment structure and then were like, wait a minute? Yeah, so I, I think I alluded to this and that the way the materials are structured that we that we hand out, um, it really sets people up that if they were thinking about this, it makes it really easy for them. Because one of the first things we have to think about if we're doing standards-based grading is, well, what are these standards going to be? Well, now, now they're kind of handed to you. You can you want to throw them out or change them or whatever. So we usually don't get too explicit about it in the training. But also the kind of people who are interested in active learning and things also tend to be interested in some of these alternative grading things. So I don't know if we've done a single workshop where we haven't got some kind of question about how do I do standards-based grading with this, but it's not an explicit requirement or anything like that. But it does tend to come up naturally, both through the interests of the people involved and the way we develop these materials. Yeah, I think one of the ways that people sometimes find their way to the project is because of the, the exercise banks that we make available. So through the software called Check It that I maintain, we're able to produce these randomized assessments aligned with each of our learning outcomes. It's just a website that you don't have to install it anywhere. You just go to the website. You can download either a, a zip file to put in your learning management system, or you can select the ones that you want to put on a LaTeX file that's shipped off the Overleaf that you can just download and print. I'm very guilty of printing quizzes like five minutes before class because I don't have to worry about it because I can have these things on demand. And so these are outcomes aligned assessments. So people will find us through the alternative grading community for that, or they just want 
to not have to write their own problems. And, and I feel like this is a really good gateway uh, enticement to become involved in alternative grading because you have to think about what do I want to assess? And then how can I get good assessments aligned with these outcomes? And now if you're thinking about that, then it's not too much further, I think, and I hope, to go ahead and say, well, why don't you just keep track of what the students know and they don't know and tell them the stories that like I've been sharing on this recording today. So speaking of which, with this whole TBIL project and with the alt grading, you both have developed an extensive set of materials, both the teaching materials and the assessment materials. And I'll start with Steven on this one. Where do you see this going with the, especially the assessment support for the alt grading world? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'll give the plug. It's tbil.org. Anyone can go to that website. One of the things that we decided when we were writing, and we first we should also really big thanks to the National Science Foundation. This is an NSF-funded project. We are in, I guess, our fourth year of the three-year project as, as that happens. And so thanks to the NSF, we were able to fund two of the workshops. We partnered with MAA to do a third workshop through the MAA Open Project, which is itself also funded through NSF. And so that supported all the faculty training. And it also supported us to train the faculty on, especially the first cohort, present company included, in order to be part of these curriculum development efforts in order to not just enhance the linear algebra textbook, which we had in a, I think at that point, we, we officially started, it was, it was fall 20, no, got our first workshop together in summer 2021. So faculty really started getting engaged. It was more than just mine and Drew's project as of the fall of 2021 to enhance the linear algebra textbook and problem bank. And then we also started writing calculus materials. Everyone who worked on the calculus materials that first year, thank you if you're listening to this because we highly under-resourced for how, how much work that we thought because Drew and I were like, oh, we did it like in 2017. As I get older, <laughs> the more I look back on my life and go, how the heck did I do that? That was a terrible, I did not give myself enough resources to pull that off, but they were passionate like me and Drew. Yeah, I'm passionate. always... Yeah, back when we first started getting into it. And so they knocked out some really good materials for a first stab at uh, calculus. So at this stage, we have materials for single variable calculus, so like Cal 1, Cal 2. And the linear algebra materials are getting even better with the, the feedback of the community and the contributions of the community. Uh, this is an open project on GitHub, so uh, anyone can make contributions, contribute to the discussions, or join our Slack in order to ask questions as well. It includes two major aspects. So I would, I'll do the good backwards design. We've identified what our learning outcomes were that were kind of consistent across all the community members for both involved in either linear algebra or calculus. So once we had those learning outcomes, we created these randomized problem banks powered by the Check It framework. And those are available at tbl.org so that anybody can go and just get whatever problems for, aligned with whatever outcomes they want. They can assess it however they want, but it's really easy to do it with an outcomes-based uh, system if you want to align your outcomes with the ones we provided and the assessments that we provided. And then finally, well, we know what we want them to learn. We know how we're going to measure what they learn. We need activities that get them to actually learn what we want them to learn so that we can measure them and we're actually preparing them to do what they're supposed to be doing. And that's where the activity book comes into play. We have a sequence of activities, definitions, theorems that you walk into the classroom, that you project on the board or however you like to get this in front of your students and you do a little bit of talking and you have to define things, but the meat of the materials are the activities, these highly scaffolded 
activities that along with the readiness assurance process, which is the furthest backwards in the backwards design, some learning incomes, if not outcomes, that students, you tell them to review before they come to class. They do a little readiness assessment quiz to help make sure that they are prepared to engage in that inquiry. And then hopefully we've done the job, the scaffold, everything so that you can ask them these deep questions and students are able to engage and do as much of the mathematics for themselves at the end of the day as they can. So I think you hit on a, a few important things and full disclosure to everyone listening, I use all of these materials extremely extensively. Many people have heard me talk about my statistics class, which is running on a custom version of Check It. How are we going to make this sustainable? Because we're getting more and more faculty that want to do standards-based grading, that want to do specifications grading, and we're telling them about repeated assessment and repeated attempts, and it, it's frightening. And we already know that faculty workloads are so high. And then we have issues with, we just today found a lovely open AI type GPT model that is specifically optimized for math and has a math engine behind it. That was super fun to find today online. How do we make this workable and sustainable for faculty on the assessment side? It's probably directed at Stephen first because you're a little bit more engaged on the technical side of this. Yeah, so the project leaders for the TBL project recently put together a paper for the upcoming room conference. And I told Drew, I'm going to point at this as much as I can. I've been involved mostly not in the research side of the project and I've done a bit of the training, but really it's been the materials development and the technology development. That, of course, is really what excites me and really what I dig into. And that's the thing that our participants pointed to most often as the most critical resource or support structure that we provided them in order to engage in this novel pedagogy. And I think that it goes the same for alternative grading as well. You've got to get good materials into the hands of instructors. You can train them, you can tell them the research, you can tell them the best practices day in and day out. But as you said, Sean, it's a lot of work to actually implement this unless you have good off-the-shelf materials align with your pedagogy, align with your assessment infrastructure. And that's the thing that uh, I've been thinking a lot about and will be involved in, in some proposals coming up in the next few months to try and get support for the creation of good, open source, open access, non-paywall, non-login wall. Just put it out there and make it so that everyone can get at these materials and use these materials without as few speed bumps as possible. And that's my big goal for the next few years. We do have some folks working on pre-calculus right now. This is a part of what we're doing in our no-cost extension is we had some resources to provide additional ongoing training for faculty that wanted to learn about developing materials. So we've got pre-calculus coming along the way, both the activity book and the check-it banks. But I think it's going to really be thinking about how do we get a more concentrated effort on building up these materials, developing materials for new classes, and making sure we have the infrastructure to get it out there into the hands of instructors. And Drew, what do you think? Sustainability? Yeah, I guess the thing I'd add to that Stephen didn't say, and this is kind of why he alluded to earlier that I'd pick on him for that cyber infrastructure <laughs> word, right? Because it's, it's not just the cyber part, right? It's the, what do you call it now, like the socio-human infrastructure? Socio-technical infrastructure. Right. Socio for the humans, technical, because yeah, so there is it, technology. 
Yeah, so it's, it's the technology, but it's also like the, the community of, of people um, involved. So trying to create these communities, people who want to do this kind of work and support them in that as best we can and make sure that it doesn't just produce something and then fizzle out. So I hope Stephen and I have made really clear that producing these materials, Stephen and I wrote the first beta draft of the linear algebra stuff, and then the community has been improving that all along. And then the calculus one, our participants wrote that and that's where that's coming from. So it's not, I, I think the key to making these things, reducing that workload is helping find this community of like-minded people to collaborate on these projects and making those connections. Yeah, so I worry about it because I have put a lot of time and energy with my team into developing our statistics materials and we are facing the potential change of coordination come the fall. They're changing the structure of our coordination and I might be in that and I might not be in that. And right now, despite the team nature of the development of the materials, the actual writing and coding is actually Bosley and me, the two hosts of this particular podcast. And if our institution basically says, you had your run, you're done, how do I hand this off. I'm like, who do I find that knows Python that can do Sage math? Because our stuff, although it's still open, it's not something that just anyone can come in and handle. They need the technical skills, but then you also need, I agree with you, the socio-technical, because I've got a team of people who've worked to develop these materials. And then I have the technical people who actually build them. And then I've got Steven, thank Lord, because I've had to send a few messages going, I don't know what happened, but we're in trouble. So it still feels a little bit beta, a little bit fragile. It's not as polished as a published for pay product. But without people and investing in people to train other people, which our institutions don't like to do, how do we keep it going? I, I mean, in some ways, the easy thing of, well, just throw a bunch of problems on a piece of paper and slap some points on them. It needs a lot less maintenance because mediocre teaching needs a lot less maintenance. And so it's a question. Again, I'm coming from the perspective of having a faculty mom member as a parent who I've been listening to since 1982, working to improve education. And what's really cool is I've seen it improve. The conversations we're having now about active learning, back in 1982 and 1984, those same conversations were going on with way more resistance. At least now, there's so many more people trying to do it and, and really doing it a lot better than they did in 1982. Like in 1982, that was just beyond weird to not be lecturing from the front of the classroom. And now there's definitely a lot more, but man, the time it takes and the investment in the people. Whew. Well, that, that's something I think a lot about these days. So again, thanks to the National Science Foundation, one of the projects that I'm on is the Pros Consortium, pros, P-R-O-S-E dot runestone dot academy. If anyone wants to look into that project. So it's got a new directorate, Technology Innovations and Partnerships. 
one of those solicitations that has really been exciting for me is the pathways to enable open source ecosystems. And I think they hit it on the head that these things can't just exist in a vacuum. You can't just put problems on a page. You could put them up on a website. Maybe Hopefully that website still exists. I can't count the number of faculty that I've heard talk to me about how they've lost their personal websites because the universities don't let you put random HTML on their servers anymore. And the whole goal of this Pros Consortium, there are four core products. Check It's not one of them, but Pretext, the language that we write our textbook, is one of the core products. There's also the RuneStone product, which is a place that you can host your Pretext textbook and actually let students log into the textbook, save their progress. There's Donut, which is a, good, a, a new interactive markup language for describing mathematical activities. And WebWork, which many people are familiar with, is a, a pretty well-established assessment platform in mathematics and online education. We have those four core products and they have their own communities and their own ecosystems. Part of why, and I'm not in charge of any one of those, I've done a little bit of work with the authoring toolkit for pretext, but I'm not the benevolent dictator for life, as they say, for any of those open source projects. Why I'm really invested in that project and in that community is I'm really thinking about how do we help each other support each other because we are even if we have some similarities like donut and web work do some of the same things so does web work and runestone there's lots of different ways of accomplishing similar goals but because we're working in the open source and creating common infrastructure we're not competing with each other in fact it'd be great to find even better ways to integrate with each other and give at the end of the day instructors and authors more options to express the work, express the educational content that they want, and provide an ecosystem that if you want to work as the solitary mathematician in the attic, go for it, but you shouldn't have to. And finding ways to help get these content creators working in a broader community. That's part of what I'm really excited and I'm hopeful that we are funded for phase two to really be able to advance that project. We have an advisory council of about uh, eight folks from mathematics and computer science. We have a, we're about to announce, I guess I won't say who's yet been tapped, but we're about to have our, our first fellowship for, I stole the TBIL fellowship, Drew, idea for the pros fellowship for a few community members that are not part of the advisory council, but are, as one person said, you're gonna pay me to do what I'm already doing. I was like, yes, because you're doing such a great job and you should be rewarded for it. And you, people should know what you're doing for it because it's going to be a community effort. And having more of us tapped to get the word out that you don't have to create these materials on your own. There's a community, there's places that you can go and connect with. That's going to be super important. On the other hand, that's the socio bit. There's the technical bit. Check it. I haven't done a lot of major development on in the past year and I've learned so much more about through working on the more pretext stuff, how can we make it easier for Check It authors to work in the open, to collaborate with each other, to license things? Uh, and I'm on sabbatical, and so I've been using my sparkle emoji whenever I say sabbatical uh, in chat because I have infinite time this spring, right? But the, I really do hope that I'm going to be able to advance the Check It project this spring, and that's part of what I, I wrote into my sabbatical proposal. So hopefully we'll have some updates yeah, well, coming down. Well, speaking it. of that, one of the things that, of course, I handed you your biggest development thing for <laughs> Check It for the spring, but you're in the open resource realm, and many of us are working with non-open products. So things like LMS systems, Canvas, textbooks. And so, of course, we have a major, major, major technical challenge that is running up and hitting us in the face with the Canvas quiz banks and the Canvas tools. How do we make these things work together because again, we're 
part of the faculty group that is so motivated that we will almost put in any amount of work. But 90 plus percent of faculty are not in that space, either because they don't want to be or because they don't have the resources to be. So how do we continue to get these products to work with the non-open products and to make it possible to do this stuff while balancing concerns about academic misconduct, concerns about the impact of AI, concerns about instructor work, like so many barriers that seem to be continually hitting us in the face. Uh, I think a lot of it is that we need to make sure it's not everyone responsible for doing all of this. And then, so then we identify folks that are willing to create this content who have the bandwidth to do, like me as a research faculty member have, and I I enjoy my classical line of research and and I'm, I'm, productive enough at it that it actually does give me a lot more time to work on more risky, more less classical sorts of projects. I, I am very privileged to be able to do the work that I do um, compared with the instructor teaching a 5-4, right? And so finding folks that have that privilege, that have that bandwidth, not everyone should have to do this work. So what if we in a perfect world, the people who do have the ability to do this work and have the bandwidth to do this work should be able to find their community. They should be able to find the resources that they need, the technologies that they need to do this work efficiently, and they need to be recognized for it, and, they need to, and it, that work needs to be valued. That's one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, not just in socio-technical infrastructure for math education, but also math research. I just kept, got done with an AIM workshop a few weeks ago, and have these brilliant researchers who are also doing this work, developing large databases of mathematical content like the LMFDB, some of the most coolest work in terms of proof verification and also software to help teach students to write proofs and and validate those proofs for those students in a Google Docs-like interface. I'm super excited about that project that's about to come out. And these are all people that are doing this out of their, their own passion, not because they're being rewarded by it, by their institutions, and definitely not because they're getting paid to do it in most cases. And so I, f- I think that there's a lot of work that's being done that might count as service, and we all know how much service counts in, in certain situations, but I really feel like it's scholarship. It's professional development, it is research or on the same par as research, and it should be valued as such. And I think if we could find folks that are doing this sort of work and can help them create artifacts of this labor, citable references, DOIs, and whatnot that put a stamp on this, that this is a contribution to the academic community of mathematics, that's going to be a huge win and something I'm, I'm hoping to find ways to advance in the future. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. Last thoughts from each of you on active learning and its interplay with assessment and where we go from here. Drew? I guess the biggest thing I just want to reemphasize is uh, the point I made earlier that I used to think of these things as separate, but now I really think of them as intertwined, right? So how can, I really try and frame things now thinking about how can the assessment piece support what we're doing in the classroom and vice versa, rather than think of them as completely separate things. And Steven? Yeah, I think a lot about how my assessment layer has to make my students feel safe to do the inquiry. If students are worried about that high stakes midterm final exam, pop quiz the next day, you're not going to get anyone but the most uh, ambitious students to do the hard stuff, stuff that they don't think, they, they, there's no way you could ask this on the quiz. Or if you did, you know, it would not be effective anyway. So by giving students 
this kind of compartmentalizing, this is how your, your learning is being measured. And this is all just here to either to help you be successful when I measure you on these learning or just for your own education. You're not going to be worried about that because you have a very clear view on how you're going to be measured. So I'll say explicitly, this is not going to be on this, but I think it's really cool how Google works and how PageRank works. And we're going to talk about this. Um, and I got some of the best engagement this semester when I did that application that I explicitly said was not going to be assessed. Um, and I think that's a really important scaffolding to provide our students. I agree with everything you've said 100%. I do have one, two last things to say specifically to Drew, that Drew has a couple of nicknames that I do have to, or one nickname and one role that I need to share. So this is, of course, Drew, not a monster Lewis, who was introduced <laughs> to that phrase in one of our previous podcasts. That was the first time I'd heard it. But I would also call you Drew the master thief, master of stealing the hubcaps. So I do appreciate that you've given me so many hubcaps to steal, which I have done liberally over the years. Uh, both of you are, are incredible supports of mine. And I could not, I love teaching your linear algebra class. I just have to say for someone who managed to skip it in undergrad, lower division, and who literally I have no recollection. And quite frankly, linear algebra is probably one of the main reasons I did not complete my PhD because I got stuck in linear algebra. Getting to see it and use it is just amazing. So thank you both for your hard work and your course design and being such key members of our community. I appreciate you both. I got you. And to everyone listening, we hope you had a happy new year and we will see you again next week. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the Contact Us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website. The views expressed here are those of the host and our guest. These views are not necessarily endorsed by the Cal State System or by the Los Angeles Unified School District.